thank you all for coming. Dr. Hansen was educated at Boston University and then completed a PhD at Rice University in Houston. She has taught at the University of Dallas since 2001, full-time since 2002, and she is a scholar of British and American history. She has published widely in both of those fields. In British history, she has done extensive work on the thought of G.K. Chesterton, and in my opinion, is the finest Chesterton scholar currently working. Today, she's going to share with us her own... I've got the microphone. Today, she's going to share with us some of her interests in American history, talking about the American author Henry Adams. In pursuit of her uh, work on Henry Adams, she has been awarded a highly prized fellowship, the Garward Fellowship at the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton, not Yale, but Princeton University. And uh, she is currently completing a book manuscript which promises a significant reinterpretation of the thought of Henry Adams. And she will be sharing a portion with that, of that with us today in her talk entitled, Henry Adams on the Suicide or Sanity of America. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Susan Hansen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think that... Uh, I think that Henry Adams would be extraordinarily pleased with this clan of people who have turned out to hear about him this afternoon on a beautiful day. And I think that he wouldn't be surprised at all that we had a small band of Catholic laity who want to be an educated Catholic laity um, at a small college in the hills called Christendom College. I think he would think this would be the perfect forum of people right, to hear his, his thoughts. And I did hear that I had uh, a rival on campus this afternoon, that there's Zumba going on at the same time. Um, I, I, knew that was, I knew that was gonna destroy half of my audience. And unfortunately, I think Zumba is probably attended by most of the young women on campus, um, which is great, you know, you've gotta get all of your energy out. Women always have excess energy and if, uh, if we don't use that energy in Zumba, we would take over the world. Um, so, um, so I'm glad they're there, but it's also a little bit of a pity because um, Henry Adams was particularly concerned about the sanity or suicide of America. Um, and I, I want to emphasize or, right? We, have, we still have a choice. Right? It's not the sanity and suicide. It's the sanity or suicide of America. But he was particularly concerned about the sanity or suicide of young women in America. He was a Tocquevillian. He read Tocqueville when he was very young. He read him when he was in college. He described Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America as the Bible of my own private religion. Uh, and he took very seriously Alexis de Tocqueville's chapters on the importance of women in American history and American culture. Okay, Henry Adams put up this massive neo-Gothic duplex, right? This side is John Hay's entrance, this side is Henry Adams's entrance. And their house literally overhangs and overlooks the White House, right? Um, it was much more imposing edifice than the White House itself. And they were going to keep tabs on the, the various Republican presidents there, McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, Taft. Um, and Henry Adams describes himself during those years as becoming a stable companion to great statesmen. 
This is the only position he ever wanted. He never wanted right, any elected or appointed official position. He preferred to be a kind of power behind the throne. Um, he knew that if you actually have power, right, your hands are tied by bureaucratic red tape. So he preferred to simply have five o'clock tea with John Hay every afternoon and go out for a two-hour walk. And they would talk. Right? Um, he accompanied him when he went to Great Britain to be ambassador um, to the court of St. James, came back with him when he was appointed as Secretary of State. So the entire time that John Hay is playing a very influential role in the government, Henry Adams is stable companion to great statesmen. In fact, he says the only office he ever really coveted was that of cardinal. <laughs> by, which, by which he meant, right, like Cardinal Cisneros, like Cardinal Mazarin, like Cardinal Richelieu, right? Um, the cardinal who is, right, the gray eminence, right, the, the, uh, the ghostly figure behind the man in power, right, you may be the king of France, la tot c'est moi, right, but then there's me, right. Um, the, only, <laughs> the only office he ever really coveted was that of cardinal, um, to be sort of the statesman, um, to really turn America into an independent power. Um, in the world, um, not under the thumb either of the French, whose navy we borrowed for the American Revolution, right? um, nor the British, right? um, with, without whose right, navy, Southern Confederacy could do nothing. Um, so building the American navy was the big project. Right? All the Adamses are navy men. Later on, right, they're even navy men. And then, of course, the Air Force um, is sort of like navy squared. Right? <laughs> not army men, though. Um, diplomatic Corps and navy. Anyway, so there he is. right? Um, a, a very significant presence in American political affairs and, uh, and foreign affairs. He was very good friends with Donald Cameron, who was the um, Democratic Senate Majority Leader. They also lived across the street. Um, he had been the graduate um, professor, graduate school professor of Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the Senate Majority Leader. <laughs> um, he pretty much knew everyone. He and his wife right, hosted a salon for everyone in, in D.C. Everyone knew her very well. Her suicide came as a shock to all of Washington, D.C. society. Um, and his monument for her, the Adams Funeral Memorial, um, was one of the most famous sculptures of the turn of the century. It was done by Augustus St. Gaudens. Sorry, this might be more than you wanted, but you're getting the picture, right? Um, <laughs> um, it, was, it was done by Augustus St. Gaudens, who's the same fellow who did the William Tecumseh Sherman Victory uh, March statue that's at the base of Central Park, right? If you're heading into Central Park, right up, you know, the poets, the poets um, walk there. The enormous equestrian statue of Sherman's March to the Sea. Um, they think that it was his niece, Lizzie Cameron, marching as the victory angel in front of him. Um, so the, um, he had done that. He had also done the, um, the bas-relief of the Massachusetts 54th, um, which you see at the, in the opening credits and the closing credits of the movie Glory, if you've ever seen, right? the first black, um, I don't know if it's battalion or you know, what, what. What size the thing was, right? Um, going into battle and sorry, regiment um, in the um, in the Civil War. Sorry, I should be more of a. I'm kind of uh, interested in the diplomatic angle of the Civil War, um, but um, yeah, and here I am in this territory. Shameful of me. Um, yeah. But um, so I mean, he was, a, he was a very famous sculptor, right? And he sculpted this um, very dramatic um, cloaked figure for 
um, the Adams uh, Memorial. He paid thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for it at a time when the economy had just gone to pot and there were um, out-of-work veterans um, panhandling around Washington, D.C., and it was seen as something of a scandal. Um, and Henry Adams quite explicitly says, uh, they were drinking to forget, and I was trying to remember, um, but no one in America wants to remember, everyone in America wants to forget. Um, that's why he became a historian, right? Um, project of not forgetting, right? Okay, so it's, it's this man, right, who I'm interested in. Uh, he dies in 1918, just at the end of World War II, but he had a stroke in 1912, which almost did him in. It's kind of a hilarious stroke, if there's, <laughs> if there's such a thing as a hilarious stroke. Um, <sighs> yes. Um, so Henry Adams was supposed to go on the return voyage of the Titanic. He went to Paris every summer because he was attempting to re-educate himself in medieval history. He felt that he had been cheated at Harvard. He had been taught a kind of German romanticism version of medieval history, which was all about the Reich and the Reich and the Reich and the Reich. And he had missed somehow um, the other half of medieval history in France with Thomas Aquinas at the University of Paris, canon law, and you know, just one or two elements of red tape to tie up the hike so that it couldn't do so much damage. I mean, he sort of missed all of that part. And so he had been going to Paris every summer to re-educate himself in the Middle Ages, to dig up old texts, to dig up old songs that no one had sung for 500 years, right? It was the very beginning of the Neo-Thomistic revival. Um, Attorney Patrice had come out in, 19, in 1879. Um, and, you know, 80s, 90s, Henry Adams is beginning his, his trips, his annual trips to Paris. Um, well-connected, you know, wealthy American. He can buy every manuscript he wants, right? He's coming home with Louis C.S. chairs, right? Um, <laughs> to redecorate the Adams house. Um, 1912, he's supposed to go back to Europe on the return voyage of the Titanic. April 1912 was also the Republican National Convention, I think you guys are all interested in Republican National Conventions right now. Um, and in fact, I think there's a debate, right, uh, on all of the possible contenders um, for the Republican nomination this year, right after this event. Um, but the Republican National Convention that year was a bit disastrous. I don't know if you guys remember the Republican National Convention of 1912, right? And you're sort of like squirming in your chair and thinking, no, let's not do that again, right? Oh, no. Right? I mean, the Republicans had managed to hold on to the White House pretty much, pretty much since Lincoln, right? I mean, Lincoln, he gets assassinated. You got Andrew Johnson. That was just a mistake. We didn't mean to have a Democrat in the White House. You know, that, was, that was just a mistake, right? Back on track with Republican Ulysses S. Grant, Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, Republican Arthur Garfield, right? Oops, Grover Cleveland. But Grover Cleveland's not much of a Democrat anyway. He's not William Jennings Bryan. He's not a communist, right? In fact, he, he's the first American president to mention communism in his inaugural address, in any inaugural address, right? And that was to reassure the country that though he was a Democrat, he was not a communist. It's interesting how far these things go back, but you didn't. <laughs> it's 1884. Um, anyway, Grover Cleveland, you know, he's a gold standard man. So, you know, practically a Republican. Um, so Grover Cleveland, then we've got Harrison, Republican, Grover Cleveland again, McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, Taft, right? So the Republicans have basically managed to hold on to the White House ever since they got it with Lincoln in 1860 um, for decades. 
Um, the Republican majority had grown so large that they pretty much thought nothing could touch it, right? that they could waltz into the White House no matter what. And so they began infighting. Two wings of the Republican Party. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt had passed the Republican baton to Taft, but in the 1912 Republican National Convention, the Republican Party imploded and Teddy Roosevelt ran against Taft splitting the enormous Republican majority and allowed, allowing Democrat Woodrow Wilson to waltz into the White House on dry land through the parting of the Red Sea right? and um, taking William Jennings Bryan behind him as the Secretary of State. William Jennings Bryan, who had lost to McKinley, lost to Teddy Roosevelt, lost to Taft. But when Teddy Roosevelt and Taft started fighting each other, voila, right? in they march. Right? So this happens in April of 1912. Right? Henry Adams is waiting. He's in Washington, watching the news of the Republican National Convention, and waiting you know, to go up to New York to meet the Titanic. The Titanic sinks. The Republican Party sinks under the weight of Taft. Right? <laughs> these are all very old jokes. These are like century-old jokes, right? Um, um, and Henry Adams' letters for a, a whole week become increasingly crazed. Right? Um, he can't believe it. He had told everyone. He had told everyone that it would happen. He had written two whole books about the death of Western civilization. Right? He had said, you know, if we challenged the power of God, if we ignored God, if we thought we could do it on our own without his help, you know, sort of, if we don't you know, get our act together, like the whole thing would go bunk. Right? Um, and finally, you get this crazy letter where he's saying, Taft, Titanic, Taft, Titanic, chaos, 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 chaos. That night he has a stroke, and he's paralyzed and blind. Uh, they thought he was going to die. They basically took him up to the Adams home to die. Uh, but uh, Henry Adams' nieces weren't going to let him die. He had... He had his five nieces, but by that time he had also collected any number of other nieces. He was kind of a collector of stray women, the way other people, you know, collect stray cats out of sympathy, right? Uh, you know, if somebody's marriage had fallen apart, she could become a niece in wish, right? If somebody had a kind of abusive, morose, drunken father, she could become a niece in residence. Um, he had just acquired nieces, nieces in wish, nieces in residence, nieces in niece, former nieces, nieces to be, right? I mean, there were all of these ladies, right, of all ages. I mean, from old ladies to very young ladies, right? And it was Henry Adams and his ladies. Um, I think they all just found him very sympathetic after, they, they found him a sympathetic, um, if not pathetic figure after his wife's suicide. They thought he needed help and he thought he could help them. Um, so the feeling was mutual. He would sort of potter about, right? As I think it's, it's Henry James who says that Henry Adams had a knack for being taken well, good care of. <laughs> Just, um, but I, th I think a little bit like G.K. Chesterton, right? G.K. Chesterton, whose wife also could never have children, and he had a knack for being taken good care of. Right? He sort of became a child, I think, a little bit, um, in order to give his wife something to do. Um, very tricky, these devils. <laughs> Watch out for this tendency. Um, anyway, this is, so for those, last, for those last six years of his life, from 1912 to 1918, um, he rather resurrects from the dead. Right? The nieces go off to Lourdes on his behalf. They introduce him to two different Catholic priests who they think you know, 
could be give, begin giving him instruction in the faith. Um, after he had been reading to them so much of the Summa Theologica from his medieval studies, they thought, right, this would be the way to go. He regains um, his, most of his faculties, not his eyesight entirely, so he always has a, a personal secretary um, after that. Um, and he begins to, to create a collegium cantorum with his nieces. Um, a revival of Gregorian chant and medieval religious and secular music. A lot of the Marian hymns that we now sing, because two of his, um, two of his nieces in Wish, Eileen Tone and Josephine, I can't remember her last name offhand, um, went on to found the Pius X um, School of Gregorian Chant at Manhattanville College in New York City, um, which was basically the primary training place for Gregorian Chant in the United States of America until it closed in 1968, um, year of many revolutions, right? Um, so Henry Adams begins this, this journey. Right? Um, one of his nieces describes his life as the joyful, when his wife was alive, the sorrowful, after his wife had committed suicide, and the glorious, after his stroke, um, where he sort of gives... Um, a real treasure to America. All right, so that's, that's the guy, right? <laughs> that's the man we're talking about. Um, now I should give you a talk about him. This always happens, right? Historians are just long-winded by trade. Right? Um, history is long. Let's see. So the talk that I wanted to give you um, has two parts. That was an introduction to the man. The talk that I wanted to give you has two parts. One is a very rough sketch of the history of American higher education to the moment when Henry Adams becomes the first medieval history professor in American history. Because um, there weren't history professors prior to the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, right, you were basically studying the seven liberal arts. History was not a standalone discipline. Um, and so there weren't history professors. Um, it's not until Harvard College, which is a lot like Christendom, well, like liberal arts college, right? It's not until Harvard College transformed itself into Harvard University, a big mega research university devoted to the social sciences, that they create a history department with three history professors. Medieval, I mean, sorry, um, classical, medieval, and modern. Right? Classical, medieval, and modern. And they're planning to tell the story of sort of the rise of Western civilization leading to America. Right? It's a classic, pro classic, progressive narrative, sort of Whig progressive narrative, right? Where it's sort of the rise of rational thought out of the dark ages of myth and superstition to the rise of rational thought and science and enlightenment and then technology and we're getting so much better all the time, getting better all the time, right? Um, now we have technology to take care of all problems, including such things as, you know, births. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> sorry. You get the idea, right? It's supposed to give you the seamless narrative. Now, Henry Adams is, is asked to teach the medieval section. And initially, he thinks he can teach the medieval section because he's teaching this German romantic version of the Middle Ages um, with the sort of the German Reich, as, and then this becomes sort of, they had very weird theories about where the Americans got notions about representative government, right? They thought we got them all from the Germans, right? They'd sort of cut the Greeks and the Latins out of American history, right? And in the wilds and woods of Saxony or the prim little townships of Schleswig, we had learned from the Germans, right, the art of representative government, right, and so this was going to fit perfectly, seamlessly into this narrative, 
Um, only Henry Adams knew it wasn't true, right? and so he, f he finds himself left holding the bag. Right? How am I supposed to make the Middle Ages fit? Right? I mean, it wouldn't fit into the story of perfect, seamless progress. Right? And so he tries for two years, he tries very hard to tell the story in a way that would fit with what his two other colleagues were doing. Right? And then he quits. Um, a bit acrimonious, right? They don't like him anymore. He doesn't like them anymore, right? Later on, because he's an Adams, they try to give him an honorary law degree for his contribution to the university. Um, he's sitting across the street at his brother-in-law's house but refuses to go and accept the honorary law degree from Harvard. <laughs> don't you wish you had that kind of aplomb? Like, no thanks, I don't want any, you know, Harvard honorary law degree. He blows it off. Anyways, um, I want to give you a little bit of a a history of higher education to the moment where Henry Adams is reflecting right, on the new and the old education in two books that go together. Right? Two books which have to be read together to be understood. Right? The Education of Henry Adams, the Modern Education of Henry Adams. Henry Adams as the new Adam of the new world being educated for modernity, right? being educated in oblivion of the old world and all of its works and, and all of its... Right? Um, the education of Henry Adams in the new education. I think John Dewey learned by doing. Right? Frederick Jackson Turner, head out onto the frontier and do it with your hands, do it through an internship. Right? The, the new education of Henry Adams right? and the old education. Right? This book is entitled Mont Saint Michel and Chartres. Chartres as the cathedral school of the, for the University of Paris, with the Sedis Sapientiae seated enthroned, surrounded by images of the, the muses of the seven liberal arts. Sedis Sapientiae, the seat of wisdom, holding the Logos incarnate in her lap, right, and he's playing with the Orbis Terrarum. Um, so these two different kinds of education, right? education and memory, Mary pondered these things in her heart. Right? The constant remembering, right? the memory, remembering, remembering, remembering. Right? Um, remembering the beginning so that you can understand the end, right? the alpha, the omega. Right? I mean, this, entire, this entire theory of education sort of embodied in the medieval university, um, embodied in Thomas Aquinas' Summa. Right? Um, as opposed to the education of Henry Adams, which was an, an education in oblivion, right? an education in, in forgetting, to drink, to drink, to drink, and if that doesn't work, one can always simply pull the plug. Um, I mean, so this, I want to give you a little history of education, right, so that you can get to this moment when Henry Adams feels the need to write these two books, right? This one is addressed to Harvard, right? This is a, the book, The Education of Henry Adams, is written, he only... He only prints 100 copies of it, and he sends it to his best friends, which is to say the faculty of Harvard, the president of Harvard, Teddy Roosevelt, um, Secretary of State John Hay, right? the Adams brothers, um, Henry Adams and, uh, sorry, Henry James and William James. Right? So this, is, this is a deliberate insult to the academy, right? this book. The book about the medieval education, right? the old style education, is addressed explicitly to his nieces. Right? He pretends that his entire audience is made up of nieces. Right? If, you, if you're looking for a proper education, um, which will you know, provide you with more stability than any American education can now give you, right? 
I give you Mont Saint Michel and Chartres. Um, so, to the moment when we get to these, right? Because, I mean, I don't know. I mean, how many of you are students? eight of them here. This is good. And then there's all these faculty. Right? So this little, this little in a nutshell story, history of American higher education, right? um, very sketchy. I'm sure all of the faculty know. Right? And even some of you students, because you're at Christendom College, you probably have some vague awareness right, of this history. Because if you had, didn't have any vague awareness of this history, you probably wouldn't be here at this college. Because right? it takes a special choice to come to Christendom. It's not the kind of college that you roll out of bed and next thing you know, you're in you know, X community college or X state U. Right? Um, no, you make a decision to come here. So I assume you know something of this. Right? Um, I usually just think of American higher education in terms of three stages. Right? Um, first stage, religious, liberal arts, colleges. Every little religious group that ever fled the rise of the modern nation state in Europe started their own little religious liberal arts college in America to train their clergy. The Puritans had Harvard, the Anglicans had William and Mary, Presbyterians get Princeton, <laughs> eventually the Catholics get Georgetown. Everybody's got little religious liberal arts colleges. The same idea of education everywhere, right, with obviously the differences of their theology. Right? So it is true that the Protestant colleges would have been unplugged from the idea of the Logos incarnate, absolutely. I mean, in the sense that you couldn't go to William and Mary unless you signed an oath saying that you did not subscribe to the theory of transubstantiation, to the doctrine of transubstantiation. Right? But nevertheless, they were very engaged with the Logos incarnate as they knew him in scripture, right? Even James Madison stayed on at Princeton to study Greek so that he could you know, read scripture in the original. They were trying to get closer and closer to the actual, right? You know, how close can we get through the text, right? To the historic moment when the Logos became incarnate. So, I mean, that theory is there, right? Re um, theology as the queen of the sciences, tying together the seven liberal arts, right? Is there, right? The sede sapientiae, right? The seat of wisdom, theology, Okay, maybe she, was, maybe she was a very clear person for the Catholics, right? Mary, right? She becomes a little bit more of an allegory for the Protestants, but she's still there, right? She's still there at Princeton. Now they just have an allegory of learning, the personification of learning, right? They've replaced Mary, right? As said, a with the personification of learning, surrounded by the images of the seven liberal arts. Very interesting, right? But the, the general iconography, right, doesn't quite go away, which is... All of education is united because we're studying the one universe that was created by one creator. One God, one universe. Universe, university, right? So all of the different verses, right? Whether they're mathematical or the language of the word, right? The trivium and the quadrivium, seven liberal arts, right? All of them are describing the universe, right, which is made by a single word, it's all rational, it's all intelligible, right? um, and we get help in understanding it through revelation. Right? So there's a very clear sort of raison d'etre for those colleges, right? their understanding of themselves. Right? 19th century begins happening in Germany pretty soon, right? it's imported to the United States, 
after the Civil War, right? after the American Civil War, 1860, 1865, after the American Civil War, all of these little religious liberal arts colleges begin transforming themselves on the model of the great state universities in Germany devoted to research, empirical sciences, social sciences. Right? Um, in some sense, if you're not a science, you don't count. Right? So history had been a part of rhetoric, but then history becomes the science of human behavior. You get political science and the science of economy. And um, instead of moral theology or moral philosophy, you're doing psychology. Right? Everything has to sort of transform itself into a science to be accepted in um, the world of the hard sciences. Right? And because the source of all of this is seen as just empirical, right? The multiplicity of empirical stuff that you can collect, factoids, 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 factoids. And if you get a, a mountainous enough, right? A mountainous enough mountain, right? Of factoids, right? The theory was, right? All of these would eventually fit together, right? To create truth. Um, but no, right? There is no sort of unity to it prior to our putting it all together in the human mind, right? Um, it's very Kantian epistemology. We put it together in the categories of the human mind. And it's the, it's the knower that ties all of this sort of empirical reality together. Right? Um, and so you, you basically have all of these sciences not speaking the same language to each other anymore. Each one develop, develops a kind of highly specialized jargon for their science, right, that all the other departments can't speak, right, you haven't looked at all of these statistics that we've looked at, and you can't, right, every, there's, you know, psychology jargon, there's sociology jargon, anthropology jargon, right, <laughs> nobody can really understand, the Tower of Babel, right. Um, of course, lurking in some back offices, still tenured, and they haven't managed to die yet, are older faculty who are concerned about what this is going to do right, to American culture if we don't have any kind of unified language that we can all talk you know, to each other in. I mean, this is supposed to, there is still the idea of public discourse, right, a republic, right, that we would all speak to each other in public and right, make laws together. So there's a little bit of that concern, but I would say that concern doesn't really take off until after World War I, very much after World War II, right, when faced with, when faced with the rise of Nazi Germany and a totalitarian state, there's, there come to be real concerns about this education and how it would uh, prevent people to be ready to stand up to the state, right? That everyone is so, so individualized, so off in their own little specialty, off with their own little empirical study, Right? That no one has a picture of the whole. No one can see what's being done to the human person. No one can speak in a compelling language about the nature of man, the dignity of the human person, right? and, the, and the threats that are arising. So, it's, so, so I would say, stage, stage one, the little religious liberal arts colleges, right? um, all kind of devoted to the logos, to a common language. That's why everybody, had, in order to get into college, you had to speak Greek and Latin. Right? They didn't really care even about English. Right? <laughs> No reason to knock literature departments unnecessarily, right? Um, but there are modern inventions just like history departments, right? Um, anyway, so you have the stage A, right? Little religious liberal arts colleges. Stage B, rise of the modern research university, or as Henry Adams and many others have called it, the multiversity. It's not a university anymore, speaking with the same language. Um, and then, I would say, starting in the interwar period, after our first struggle, 
with Germany. In the 20s, in the 30s, you start to get, you know, those little programs in the big research universities that show that somebody's worried, right? Lowell College at Harvard, where they say, we're going to be the college at Harvard that protects the traditions of Harvard. Tradition is very important to Lowell College, right? And sort of, we're going to keep it, we're going to keep up some of these older traditions of a liberal arts education. A little bit of things like that. After World War II, I think it starts in earnest. And there's, I'd say, stage three um, of the history of American higher education is an attempt at restoration. A variety, a wild variety of attempts at restoration, right? um, which in some sense is just super American. If you think of all these, right, all these little religious groups and family groupings coming over, you know, fleeing the initial rise of the modern nation state and starting up little li religious liberal arts colleges, right? And then sort of when the rise of the modern nation state comes home to roost here, right, we start to get the mega research university as well, but when we have to fight Right, modern um, nation states, rise of the totalitarian states in the 20th century, we start getting this very American reaction, right, of these little sort of resistor programs and then resistor colleges, right, and it sort of starts to take off. 20th century American um, university um, history is fascinating. You guys are part of it, so is University of Dallas, right? This, that's our story, right? Stage three is us, right? And there's many of us now. It's kind of fascinating, right? I would say there's, there's, I would put it as a kind of, um, there's, there's three moments there. Right? There's the great books moment, there's a West Civ moment, and then I would call it the tradition moment. Right? Um, there's the great books movement, which is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. In this great story right, of how we came out of the dark ages of religion and superstition into moral philosophy and then on to you know, enlightenment and then on to science and technology, right? There, there are certain books when it doesn't matter when they were written, they haven't been surpassed. Right? And so we're simply going to sit down with these books and enter into direct conversation in a kind of eternal now. It's me and Plato. It doesn't matter when Plato spoke. Right? These are ideas worth considering. Right? So the Great Books program is a story about eternity. Right? Um, the Civ programs... The civ programs are completely different. Civ programs are, in some sense, they're, they're much more at home with a modern research university. The first one is invented at Columbia University, James Robinson, graduate professor. He teaches all the history professors. History professors run out to all the other colleges and start teaching civ courses, right? But the civ course narrative is very much that progressive narrative. But what you're trying to do in a civ class is get majors from across the spectrum at your university to basically tell the story of how their science has progressed. You know, so in physics, we used to think this, but now we think this. In math, we used to think that, and now we think this. And in psychology, we used to think this, but now we've come through this. I don't know, Copernican revolution, right? Read some Darwin, read some... The, basically, a civ course is rise of rational thought writ large, but it includes everyone. So there's an attempt, right, there's an attempt to create a unified voice, a unified understanding of who we are, right? We are the people who have benefited from all of this. Right? Now, those two are in serious tension with each other, right? Because any old text is simply the way we were, right? Compared to who we are now in a civ course, whereas right, the, the great texts of the great books courses are living in a kind of eternal now. So they're in a lot of tension with each other. And so I think the programs 
that arise in the 1950s, 60s, and then very much in the 70s and 80s, I think particularly after, after the modern research university hits Catholic universities belatedly. Right? The reasons why Catholic universities don't jump on board in the 1860s with this, right? They're, they're still trying to prove they're American by being a religious liberal arts college, right? <laughs> they're sort of starting up in the back, right? But by the time it hits Catholic universities, and it's when the Catholic universities start creating their own little restoration movements and programs, and right, so you get a um, you get a center for ethics and culture at Notre Dame, and you get a center for faith and learning at Baylor, and you get right James Madison program at Princeton. These are what I call barnacles on the ship of the university. Right, it's a sign that the university is dying. Good professors have pulled away from the center of the university, created a little hub where they can all talk together and right and educate some students independently from the rest of the university. Right? But at any rate, um, so I think in the 1950s. University of Dallas is founded in 1956. It's a nice marking point, but I think it really speeds up in the 1970s after the Second Vatican Council and all of this kind of coming home in Catholic universities. So then Christendom and Ave Maria and Steubenville and everything sort of starts really taking off. Even UD after the 1970s is a completely different place with Wilhelmsen and all of these you know, incredible um, philosophy professors and stuff who come later. Right? Our Rome pro program dates to the 70s, not to the 50s. Right? Um, Am I going too fast? Is this still making sense? Is that, okay. Um, you're wondering when Henry Adams comes in, maybe? That, I'm not going to make it? I am going to make it. <laughs> it's a challenge. <laughs> challenge from the audience. I don't even, I, I'm probably out of time now, right? Yes. Five minutes. Okay. Um, so basically, these tradition programs is what I would call them, right? It's a very Christopher Dawson-esque idea, right, of bringing together great books and civ, right? The fact that there are, right, fundamental truths about the nature of man, the nature of God, but we have progressively understood them, right? Great minds have meditated on them, projected them into art in different forms, right? And so there is both, right? There are both eternal truths, but there is also, right, the ongoing tradition, unflowering, right, through, through history, right? Um, which I think is a beautiful, right, combination of both efforts at restoration, right, in, in those kinds of programs. Um, all right, to return to Henry Adams' place in the restoration. I mean, so this is what, I'm, what I would argue is Henry Adams is one of those old professors hiding in his office, right, um, horrified at what the president of the university is doing to the, you know, the university. Um, only he, he decides to quit and to go off to Paris and start doing his own research in the medieval university, right, and to write these, these two books. Then back up here, right. Um, No, we'll save this for Q&A, so that I can finish in five minutes. All right, I'm going to give you the handout. I'm going to pass that back. That's half of the other side. The handout is the last five minutes, the part where Henry Adams intersects right, with um, the sanity or suicide of the American university, right, and the sanity or suicide of those educated in the American university. I didn't want to give you the handout at the beginning, because it has Latin at the top of it, and it's four o'clock in the afternoon, so I was afraid it might put you to sleep, right? Um, it says at the top three quotations on the church as the quod erat demonstrandum of history, right? 
what I would call Henry Adams. Right? Henry Adams is sitting here at this pivot point between stage two and stage three of the history of American higher education. Right? He's sitting at the pivot point of restoration. What's funny is he's, he's launching the restoration at the same moment right, that the transformation to modern research university is going on. Right? It's, he's simultaneous with it. He sees it coming. He immediately, after two years, retires and starts launching the restoration. Right? He's our earliest guy. Right? And you just got to love the fact that it's from the Adams family. He's the one who sees it. Right? Um, so he says at one point right, in his letters, um, find this here. He says, if Harvard or Yale had been less foolish in their origins and had held on to the church, we should have probably kept a base on which to build some real scholarship. But when our ancestors cut off the limb that made us a part of the tree, we naturally tumbled off. Right. I think already at the very beginning of the restoration, prior to the great books programs of you know, Robert Hutchins and Mortimer Adler at the University of Chicago, right? prior to James Robinson's Civ courses, right? prior to Dawson showing up here as chair of Catholic studies at Harvard, right? prior to all of that 1940s, 1950s stuff going on, right? I would say sort of the deep like, excavation work is being done right, by Henry Adams um, in, in these books. Right? The Education of Henry Adams, which is mocking Right, the rise of the modern research university, and Monsen, Michel, and Chart, which is trying to rediscover right, what is at the, at the very core of the medieval university. And I think what he's doing, you'll see in these, these three quotations, right, he's showing that history is not, a, it's not a science. It cannot be an empirical science. This is why he quit being a historian. Right? Cannot be an empirical science in that sense of the word. Right? He says because the, the empirical evidence of history is from the beginning of time to the end of time. As long as history continues, right, we can never complete our fact-finding mission. Right? Um, and so instead, there is a moment for a leap of faith right, about the meaning of history. And he suggests, as I think Newman and Chesterton also suggest, Right? that the church is the quod erat demonstrandum of history, is that which is to be demonstrated by history. It's a demonstration which will not be completed until the end of time. Right? But to demonstrate that the church bears eternal truths about the nature of man and the nature of God, and that these are un unfolded through history, but in an unchanging way, is the quote erat demonstrandum of history. This is sort of 20th century apologetics, right? um, as you see it in all of the, the figures of the third spring, right? um, the figures of the, the Catholic intellectual revival in Great Britain and the United States um, in the 20th century, right? is an apologetics of the church. Right? Now, obviously, you need the, the old apologetics first. right? The old apologetics, which gives you so the preambula fide of a metaphysics and a natural law, you can only be impressed with the church as an unchanging carrier of that metaphysical and natural law tradition, right, if you already recognize the metaphysical and natural law tradition. But they're interested not in, I would say, part one, right, the bottom line, the metaphysics and the natural law. They're interested, because they're speaking to people who are fascinated with civ courses and history and progress, right, 
They're interested in stage two of apologetics, which is an apologetics of the church as a bearer of these things, as the, and as the bearer of a revelation which is in perfect rational conformity with what we can know by reason. Um, there's, you guys have bells. That's nice. Um, three quotations on the church as the quod erat demonstrandum of history. The first long quotation there is Newman, and then Henry Adams, and then Chesterton. This is a Machiavellian handout. Right? I have sandwiched Henry Adams between two great converts to Catholicism, right? implying that Henry Adams almost made it. Right? Think if it hadn't been for that stroke. Right? Never get too involved in politics such that you have strokes. Right? It might prevent your spiritual conversion, which is more necessary to the salvation of your soul. No, um, sorry. Um, so I've sandwiched him in here between the two of them, right? And on the other side of your, your paper, before I read you these quotations and be done with it, and we can move into questions, um, I've given you an image of the cathedral at Chartres. Now, the only thing that Henry Adams is really interested in in the cathedral at Chartres, even though he wrote a very long book about it, his real fascination was the spire on your right. <laughs> it's the spire on your right that he thinks is utterly amazing. The spire on your right is the only surviving spire from that period. They built a spire that didn't fall down. They built a church that didn't fall down. The others collapsed of their own weight. That's the point. It lasted. It is still here today. You yourself can go see that spire. And it's the only spire right, of the 12th century. Okay, square tower topped by an octagonal spire. That's the trick, right? How do you get a square spire, a square tower to support an octagonal tower, both spire of such height, right? You want the tower to go up as far as it can possibly go up, and you want an, an octagonal tower that can go up as far as it can go up, you want them to be balanced, right? And you don't want the, the, you don't want the transition from your square tower to your octagonal spire, right, to blast the eye. That's why he disliked the other one, right? He thought it was fussy. It was trying to hide what it was doing too hard, right? Um, whereas he thought this other one was sort of the simplicity of it, right? It's a seamless transition from the square tower the square solidity of what human reason can know and what human will can accomplish, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, to an octagonal spire disappearing into the sky, right? human nature with faith, hope, and love becoming like God, but we never know, we never know how, how far does that go, right? How like God can you get, right? <laughs> It just goes up. You don't know what grace could do if you cooperate with it. Right? So this is his example of sort of the faith and reason unity of the Middle Ages that never collapsed, that is here today if you want, if you want it. Right? And, and I think for Newman, for Chesterton, and also for Henry Adams, right, the Catholic Church is right, the quod erat demonstrandum of history, that which has lasted. And if we last to the end of time, it will last too. Right? We can participate in making it last, right? 
and then our lives will also be a part of the quote et demonstrandum of history, or we can have nothing to do with making it last, and then we will be as uninteresting as all the rest of history that will sort of drop out of the bottom of right, the demonstration. Okay, um, let's, I'll just read these quotations and be done with it, don't you think? Um, all right. From Newman, and this is, of course, not any sermon by Newman, but this is his last sermon as an Anglican at Oxford in 1845. The great going out of Newman from the Anglican Church in 1845. What a remarkable sight it is, as almost all unprejudiced persons will admit, to trace the course of a theological controversy from its first disorders to its exact and determinate issue, full of deep interest to see how the great idea takes hold of a thousand minds by its living force and will not be ruled or stinted, but is like a burning fire as the prophet speaks, shut up within them till they are weary of forbearing and cannot stay and grows in them and at length is born through them, perhaps in a long course of years and even success successive generations, so that the doctrine may rather be said to use the minds of Christians than to be used by them. Wonderful it is to see with what effort, hesitation, suspense, interruption, with how many swayings to the right and left, with how many reverses, yet with what certainty of advance, with what precision in its march, and with what ultimate completeness it has been evolved. Till the whole truth, self-balanced on its center, hung, part answering to part, one absolute, integral, indissoluble, while the world lasts. Wonderful to see how heresy has but thrown that idea into fresh forms and drawn out from it farther developments, with an exuberance which exceeded all questioning and a harmony which baffled all criticism, like him, its divine author. Splendid, right? It's even grammatically splendid, right? This idea, this truth, right? Right? And then, of course, Chesterton had read Newman. We're going to jump, jump down to the Chesterton one, the bottom half of the sandwich, right? Chesterton had read Newman, right? He knew this passage. He knew it was awesome, right? Chesterton just simply wanted to say the same thing. He just wanted to make it funny. This is the thrilling romance of orthodoxy. People have fallen into the foolish habit of speaking of orthodoxy as something heavy, humdrum, and safe. There never was anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. The perilous tower. It was sanity, and to be sane is more dramatic than to be mad. It was the equilibrium of a man riding behind madly rushing horses, seeming to stoop this way and to sway that, yet in every attitude having the grace of statuary and the accuracy of arithmetic. The church in its early days went fierce and fast as any war horse, yet it is utterly unhistoric to say that she merely went mad along one idea, like a vulgar fanaticism. She swerved to left and right, so exactly as to avoid enormous obstacles. She left on one hand the huge bulk of Arianism buttressed to by all the worldly powers to make Christianity too worldly. The next instant she was swerving to avoid Orientalism, which would have made it too unworldly. The Orthodox Church never took the tame course or accepted the conventions. The Orthodox Church was never respectable. It would have been easier to have accepted the earthly power of the Arians. It would have been easy in the Calvinistic 17th century to fall into the bottomless pit of predestination. It is easy to be a madman. It is easy to be a heretic. It is always easy to let the age have its head. The difficult thing is to keep one's own. It is always easy to be a modernist, as it is easy to be a snob, to have fallen into any of those open traps of error or exaggeration, which fashion after fashion and sect after sect set along the historic path of Christianity. That would indeed have been simple. It is always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls. 
only one at which one stands. To have fallen into any one of the fads from Gnosticism to Christian science would indeed have been obvious and tame, but to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure, and to my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. Good stuff, right? So um, this, um, the great idea and the orthodoxy that Newman and Chesterton are talking about, right, is the same thing, right? Now, to come to Henry Adams, then, I want to suggest, briefly, gently, gently, um, that the great idea, or the orthodoxy, right, that they see whirling through the ages, right, and that he sees as Right, the, as the base of the whole effort of this spire, the whole effort of the medieval cathedral that still stands, the base of it, and Chesterton was criticized for this, right? so the base of it is the idea of a transcendent God. The base of it is a God who is I am who am, so that there are no eternal forms and there is no eternal prime matter. The philosophic, the metaphysical insight at the center right, that sort of grounds Christian revelation. Right? We are neither Platonists nor Aristotelians. Right? There are no eternal forms. There's no et eternal prime matter. Right? In the beginning, there was God, right? the I am. He creates the forms. He creates the prime matter. Right? That things are created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Right, the ex nihilo phrase, which comes out of the mother of the Maccabees, is the, where we get that um, concept most clearly articulated in the Old Testament tradition. Um, that, that, right, that is the, the central truth that Thomas Aquinas was fighting for in the breach of the 12th century. Right? And Henry Adams, in his final chapter on Thomas Aquinas and Monsen Michel at Chart, absolutely portrays Right. Thomas Aquinas as a man standing in the breach between Abelard and the mystics, right? between the Aristotelian rationalists and the Franciscan, you know, Augustinian, right? Neoplatonic at that point, right? um, tradition, right? a man standing in the breach defending the very basic idea of a transcendent creator, right? and I am who am. Um, can anyone here, since this is Christendom College and I just had a tour, can anyone tell me in Latin, students preferably, um, all of the I ams? From John? Yes. I was delighted to see that. No? Oh, please. No one? How about in English? We're looking for students. If we can't get a student, do the students agree we should turn to the professor class? You want to turn it over to your professors? You're looking like you might want to do it. Staff doesn't know. Oh, right. Give, give it to us. Yes, Professor Rice. Hegel's idea, where he tells the Vita, Hegel's soon, oh God. No, it's going to blank out. I don't know, as I go around the. I think it's I am the way. Is it? What is the way? I am the truth. And I am the gate, the sheep gate. Sheep gate, the punnies. I understand. I can't do it yet, but I'm going to now that I've seen that dome, right? I'm, I'm going to learn those, going to learn those verbatim, right? The thing is, we go through that all the day, 
It's almost as it's almost as bad as a laptop and a Google. <laughs> For for Henry Adams, right at the end of at the end of Monsieur Michel and Chart, right, he wants to introduce his five nieces to the I Am. He says this is the one way in which God supremely surpasses humanity. He says explicitly at the end, and this is a book addressed to five girls whose you know, all their father and mother figures have all committed suicide. And he says, what is most curiously still? What is more curious still? Man might absolutely prove his freedom by refusing to move at all. If he did not like his life, he could stop it, and habitually did so, or acquiesced in its being done for him. While God could not commit suicide, or even cease for a single instant his continuous action. If man had the singular fancy of making himself absurd, a taste confined to himself but attested by evidence exceedingly strong, he could be as absurd as he liked but God could not be absurd. To introduce these five fatherless girls to the great I am who cannot commit suicide. All right, so this is what he sees as the truth which shoots up right, and creates a home for man. Right? A home that responds to every emotional, psychological, social need in the human person and our needs are vast, right? We're one sort of eros machine, right? Need love, right? And he says, the I am, right, is a truth so powerful that it shoots up, right, and creates a home for the human person. Knowing by an enormous experience precisely where the strains were to come, the architects of the church enlarged their scale to the utmost point of material endurance lightening the load and distributing the burden until the gutters and gargoyles that seemed mere ornament and the grotesques that seem rude absurdities all do work either for the arch or for the eye, and every inch of material up and down from crypt to vault, from man to God, from universe to the atom had its task, giving support where support was needed or weight where concentration was felt, but always with the condition of showing conspicuously to the eye the great lines which led to unity and the curves which controlled divergence, so that from the cross on the flesh and the keystone of the vault, down through the ribbed nervures, the columns, the windows, the foundation of the flying buttresses, far beyond the walls, one idea controlled every line. And this is true of St. Thomas's church as it is of Amiens Cathedral. Right. Thank you. like double the time I was supposed to speak for. But if anyone has time, actually, we'll give a moment for anyone who needs to rush off. Go rush off if you need to rush off. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but if you want to stick around, we have time for questions. Hopefully I've given you some stuff that might provoke questions. <laughs> yes? Okay. Um, I had, like, looked at this one, like, movie that kind of outlined the influence the Rockefeller family had on Yes, well, I definitely think that um, while you have Charles Eliot's 
transformation of Harvard, you also have Woodrow Wilson's transformation of Princeton, and from Wood transforming Woodrow Wilson, he goes on to transform America as devoted precisely to that kind of uh, cosmopolitan, one world order right, um, kind of idea. Um, Woodrow Wilson's school of, um, school of public policy or something up at Princeton is that, right? Um, and Henry Adams actually, um, there's a uh, very well-known um, neo-Gothic architect, Ralph Adams Cram, who's running around the country rebuilding these, this is a very interesting episode, right? As you're transforming your little religious liberal arts college into a modern mega multiversity, you nevertheless have to fool your donors, right? And so they put up these Potemkin village things, right? There's this kind of, at the same time that that's going on, they're rebuilding everything in neo-Gothic, right? Sorry, but this is when you know, Notre Dame becomes neo-Gothic, just as it becomes, right? Boston College goes neo-Gothic, right? Just as they're going through the transformation. Princeton goes neo-Gothic as they're going through the transformation. Vanderbilt goes neo-Gothic as they go through the transformation. So what's interesting is there's a, there's a disjunct, right? And that's the, that's the German romantic neo-Gothic, right? We're, we're not talking the, right? And um, Ralph Adams Cram actually asks Henry Adams if, she, if he can publish his Monsen, Michel, and Chart, and he publishes it with an introduction of his own. And then in a, in a bunch of letters, Henry Adams keeps saying, Ralph Adams Cram has hijacked my Chart. Ralph Adams Cram has stolen my Chart. Ralph Adams Cram, you sort of this, you know. So I, there I would see, I mean, there is a, there's definitely, there's, there's definitely a tension between um, because, I mean, the, the modern research university, it, it makes sense in terms of the growing economy, right? Um, they're, they're looking for basically, I always think of the modern research university as having two tiers, right? You've got an A&M bottom, right, and then graduate programs. So you're either becoming trained to enter the workforce, agriculture mechanics, right, get a job as a worker in an expanding economy, was it nice when I was expanding? Um, or get a job as an expert in public policy, all kinds of different forms of policy or management, and then you know, management psychology and whatnot, in order to orchestrate the economy. So it makes perfect sense that the money for this, the money for the rebuilding of these universities is coming from the Rockefellers and the Morgans and those. So it's um, they're they're building labs with neo-Gothic fronts. Right. They're building, I mean, it's a very odd American university construction project. Right. Um, I don't know if that helps, yeah, gives a sense of it. Yes? Henry Adams committed suicide himself, did he not? No, Henry Adams did not commit suicide. There is, there is, um, there, there's a, there's a, there's a little thread here, right? that then, you know, you know, once there's one mistake in the literature, everybody else just keeps quoting it. Um, so after he has the stroke, um, after he has the stroke, there's this episode where he's sort of like, you know, crazy and needs air and like goes to the window to get air and they're worried that he's gonna fall out, right? There's this, but that's in 1912. He dies in 1918 in his bed. There's no question at the time of any sort. So that story gets combined with his death and the suicides of everyone else in the family into a story that he committed suicide. But no, there's yeah. Yes. Is there any connection between Adams and uh, Charles Homer Askins, who wrote this book? Uh, he was a 
like the Utah and Harvard, and wrote this book, The Renaissance of the 12th Century, in like the 19-teens, that kind of, I think, revised this narrative that there's nothing interesting going on in the Middle Ages and so on. Yes. Um wish I could give a full answer to that, but I know they have correspondence with each other. Um, there's, a, there's a small clan of medieval historians that Henry Adams strikes up correspondence with in this project. Um, and I know that he, his name is in there. Yeah. But I'm sorry, I can't give much more than that. <laughs> yes? You know, it's it's a little bit like a conversation we were having earlier, a um, little sort of funny professor conversation. Um, <laughs> but, you know, every once in a while, um, the truth hits you over the head like a brick. And you realize that you've been living in your little academic world where there are certain truths that all of us professors think are true. And then you step outside your office and you realize, oh wait, I'm just, so we were talking about, right, some great narrative of the, the revival of Catholic literature in the 20th century, right? Centuries worth of this. No mention of Tolkien. Right? So if this book comes out, just as right, all the Narnia movies, are being, all the Tolkien movies, I don't care what you think about any of them, right? Nevertheless, they reveal that there's an ongoing readership of that literature, so maybe it should have just been mentioned in the history of the revival of Catholic literature. Right? So similarly, Henry Adams goes, he gets invited by the, Ca the Cabot Lodges on their family vacation to Paris, to France. And he, says, he basically says, they saw something that all of the German professors of the Middle Ages had not seen, medieval cathedrals the French High Middle Ages. Like, it's there, staring them in their face. They're all over the place. He said, you, he, I mean, plus he's, he's like Mr. Toad. He's just gotten himself a motor car, right? So he's like Mr. Pot Pot, you know, he's going along and he says, he, he loved to take, he loved to take his, his centuries by the minute, right? 10th century, 11th century, 12th century. Like he's cruising along, he's like, in the distance you could see the entire Middle Ages monumentalized. Why did nobody mention this to us, right? Why is this not in the picture? And so it's just, it's there. It's a hobby that turns into a transformation of the, of the field, right? Um, you know, that's, that's what did it. At least that's, that's how he tells the story, right? I think it had to do with being good friends with somebody who was interested in, in stained glass, too. The, um, John Lafarge, famous American stained glass artist. Um, so, oh, I should have told the end of the story, right? The five nieces, right? Not one of them commits suicide. They all live till their natural death. Two of them live into their 90s. One of them marries a Catholic and converts to Catholicism. Um, and her brother-in-law helps to write one of the encyclicals um, on the unity of the human race or something. I can't remember. Um, a draft of when he generates or something like this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. John Lafarge. Anyway, so it was there to see. Right. Yes. They don't see west of the Rhine. What's this? They, they don't see. see west of the Rhine. Yeah, I think it also. I think it also helped that he, he's also involved in foreign affairs, and they're reorchestrating all of our alliances. Right? It's hard for us because we always think we're post World War II kids. Right? I mean, we, 
I don't know. I don't know whether people think of themselves as post World War II kids, and I do, right? I mean, I grew up watching World War II movies, right? We're always the allies, right? When in Rick's American Cafe, <coughs> the Germans are singing German songs, you're so happy that the allies sing the Marseille. You're like, ah, oh, beat down the Germans with the French national anthem, right? It's hard for us to remember, right, that the English-speaking peoples had always considered the French their primary enemy. But at the beginning of the 20th century, you have a, an alliance transformation. So to some, you're also trying to explain culturally why we're allies. While we're not Anglo-Saxon peoples, we're not Teutonic peoples, we're not going to be on the German side in this coming war, we're going to stand up for the French, even though we've always hated the French, right? And as Adams is with a family history that goes back to the French and Indian War, where we were fighting the French, right? That was a, that was a, it was a cultural, mental revolution that he himself needed to go through to make the Frenchies allies, right? Um, so that's, I think, also involved in it somehow. Other thoughts? I know William James was very fond of Chesterton, <laughs> and wrote some very, very flattering things about Chester. Did, was Henry Adams familiar with Chesterton? Um, Henry Adams is familiar with Chesterton's work. Um, in fact, I think Henry Adams is, is more fond of Chesterton than William James. Chesterton quotes at the beginning of pragmatism. Sorry, let me try that again. William James quotes Chesterton at the beginning of pragmatism. Um, but I think that... Um, Chesterton sort of di disavowed, I think that's kind of the point of, pragma of orthodox, his book Orthodoxy, right? Is that this is not a pragmatic argument for Christian orthodoxy as socially useful or useful to the individual psychologically, but that he actually thinks, sorry guys, this is true, right? So he's basically writing contra William James having picked him up, right, um, as a buddy. Um, but Henry Adams... He's got a number of Chesterton books in his, in his library, and he, he mentions him several times. Um, so that's, a, that's another track that I want to I track down. I was going to, uh, alternative note, um, William James did not appreciate the slam against you know, learning by doing and the Harvard that you know, the, the New England transcendentalists had created in the education of Henry Adams. He did not get a, he was not personally sent one of the first 100 copies of the book and felt insulted by that. He demanded to have a copy. And when Henry Adams sent him a copy, um, he was unfortunately on his way to the Swiss Alps for a rest cure. I always find this lovable that the man who wrote our first psychology textbook um, was neurotic and was constantly going to the Swiss Alps for rest cures, right? which you could only do if you were incredibly wealthy, right? <laughs> top deck of the Titanic kind of people, right? going off for, you know, to cure their nerves. Um, anyway, he was en route um, for this rest cure, and he stopped in Paris to tell Henry Adams what he thought of his book, um, which he didn't like the book. And when he got to um, Switzerland, he wrote a furious letter rejecting the whole critique of, of their generation died. So, I like to think that the education of Henry Adams killed William James. <laughs> yes, last. Uh, could you say a little uh, bit more about uh, Adams' 
Um, well, it's published in 1904. So it's, yeah, the late 1890s is when he's writing it. Right. What about his actual relationship with the church? Right. So, in my sense is, first of all, that Henry Adams is of a class that doesn't see below a certain zone, right? Top deck of the Titanic, right? Doesn't really see what's beneath. Um, so the, the vast Irish immigrant church is kind of invisible to Henry Adams, so far as I can tell. And I think, I think this actually... It, it somewhat coats his, his relationship to Chesterton as well, because he meets Cecil Chesterton. When Cecil Chesterton is in America, um, a lot of these Europeans who are coming over trying to get the Americans to join the war in World War I come through Henry Adams' house. Like his house is kind of a base for pro-English, pro-war sentiment to try to stop the Germans, right? So um, Cecil Chesterton comes by his house for breakfast, but he finds him a very crass, filthy, um, I think he's just not used to those kinds of people, right? He's like just of a different cockney class that he wasn't expecting. Um, and so the, the Catholics who he knew were, I would say society, sort of high society converts. Um, so you think of Orestes Bronson, Father Thomas Hecker, um, a number of the a number of the um, Harvard art folks, New England art folks, I mean, Nathaniel Hawthorne is over in Rome, um, William Story, the sculptor, over in Rome. I mean, so there's a whole um, New England art community in Rome. And a lot of them are interested in Catholicism, but more because they see it as an alternative to a crass modernity that's coming upon them. So sort of German romantic, you know, reaction to the Middle Ages. Kind of... Um, um, Pre-Raphaelite style interest in Catholicism. It's kind of, in some sense, you could say the, the Boston Brahmin class flees either into interest in Asia and Buddha, right, or into an interest in medieval Catholicism of the a sort of Pre-Raphaelite quality, right, um, sort of somewhat rarefied. Um, the Lafarges are of that um, clan because um, they're John Lafarge is is French-Irish um, Catholic, but he, he marries into the Perry family and his wife converts. Um, anyway, um, so Henry Adams does not find that group of Catholics sympathetic. Um.